Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host today, Brooklyn native, longtime New Jersey resident, the old Jewish guy who specialized in conflict resolution in inner city schools for many years, and my dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan. How you doing, Corey? (laughs) Nice to see you. Good to see you. Good, good. And as always, don't forget to hit the subscribe button, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Tim Alexander. Tim has spent his life dedicated to public service and equal justice, currently a civil rights attorney and activist. He first spent many years in law enforcement, then became a prosecutor, and finally a civil rights attorney. Now, Tim Alexander is a candidate for U.S. Congress in New Jersey's 2nd District, my home state, which includes AC, Atlantic City, OC, Ocean City, Cape May, and Pennsville, uh, which we'll certainly talk a lot more about that district today, as well as Tim's incredible background. Tim Alexander, this is such an honor to have you with us. How are you doing? Great, Corey. And and Ronnie, is, I'm so humbled that you guys invited me to be on the show. I, I can't express that enough. Thank you so much. I, I forgot I forgot to ask you the right way. Since you were Jersey boys, uh, I should, should have said, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> but we've been, the next first five minutes of the show have been us asking how we're doing, though. <laughs> um, well, I'd like to start a little differently. I've seen you in a number of interviews, and I love those books behind you. Uh, what are some of your favorites on that shelf, and, and uh, what are you reading these days? So I give away a lot of books and people come in uh, in um, asking me about them. And, and so I'll tell them what's a good read. One of my favorites is the um, half has never been told it's um, slavery and the making of American capitalism. And, uh, and it really goes into a nice, it's by Edward Batiste, by the way, it goes into a deep dive in the economic aspects of slavery. And we, we, of course, you know, we talk about the horrors of it, but what was driving motivation? What was the driving motivation of the civil war? And it's, it's too simple to say slavery. And I think this does a great job when it talks about how slave trade was, uh, you know, the slave states had a greater GDP than the rest of the country combined. I, I just find that to be fascinating. And so that's my favorite. What am I reading these days? Not much. The news. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm constantly, uh, uh, because I'm still maintaining a practice, a law practice as well as running for um, office, as you indicated. Uh, I don't have much leisure time for reading. So I pretty much just do reruns and and grab something just for a few minutes to zone out. I really can't point to anything specific, but that, you know, just about everything on this top shelf I've read, the lower shelves hit or miss, a lot of it uh, belongs to my wife. And then on the other side of my, um, the other bookcase, these are all my law books that I use every day. They're just workbooks, tools, if you will. That's great. 
Now, I've heard you mention your grandfather in other interviews. He sounds like a really special person. Can you tell us a little bit about your grandfather, where you came from, and and uh, how your grandfather influenced your life? Sure. So my grandfather, um, he's originally uh, North. He was a North Carolina uh, native, born there. He, he did some service uh, in U.S. Army. Did some overseas uh, work, a tour that is with World War II. He was in Italy for a bit, and then his. Um, his family, or he migrated his family first to um, Long Island, where they worked in chicken factories. And then they came back to, uh, came over to Kenilworth and then eventually Newark, New Jersey. And that's where they they really uh, put the roots in. My grandfather's very unique to me in that we didn't really have a, a real tight uh, relationship because my parents separated when I was young. I did spend a great deal of time with them in the summer, um, but didn't have that you know, what, what we, you would look back and say, well, we went to ball games. In fact, my grandfather was diehard Mets fan. Which meant <laughs> I was a die, <laughs> which meant I was a diehard Mets fan. Uh, and so we, we enjoyed the game by sitting in uh, two of the kitchen chairs with no arms, dead smack in the middle of the living room watching the Mets game. So the challenge was not to fall asleep out of my chair, but uh, it was, um, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, He's one of those guys, he didn't say much, but when he said something, it really, really mattered and it really, really counted. And later, we'll, maybe we'll talk about, you know, my experience with um, being falsely arrested and how he really got me, got the train back on the rails, if you will. You know, since you brought it up, I, I heard this story that when you were 19, um, you, you happened to already be in the police academy and you were, you were falsely arrested. Or excuse me, um, you, you had this terrible experience with police brutality, a terrible story that happened to occur the day after your father passed away. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about exactly what happened uh, and how you managed everything in the aftermath? Sure. And, uh, and just by way of context, uh, when I finished high school, I was... Um, I had already been accepted to college. I was accepted to Emory Riddle, which is an aeronautical school in Florida. And we were super excited. No one in my family had gone to college yet. And, um, you know, did all the research on, on finding money for it. And we came up short. And I say we, my mom, uh, I was living with my mother at the time. So um, I was talking to a coworker as I was worked at a supermarket at the time. And he said, well, why don't you join the police force? And you could save up some money. And, you know, eventually you'll, you'll be able to go to college and, and you call the college, they'll probably hold your slot for you for a couple of years. So I did that. I didn't get, you know, a deferment from college, but I figured I could reapply. And I took the test and joined the police force. And at 18 years of age, six months out of high school, I was standing on Academy Lane uh, trying to learn how to be uh, a uh, New Jersey state trooper. And about, about five months into the program, uh, we had a critical exam for uh, the law that you needed to, to learn. It was, a, it was a must pass and I failed it. And so I was um, recycled, as they say, I was ejected from the academy. And you know, I was going about life, making plans to go back and uh, I had to retest and everything. And so I was waiting for it to come up again and living mostly in North Jersey. And my father passed away. So this was in May of 1985. And after he passed away, you know, we all got together and we had to make funeral arrangements because he, he just didn't have uh, his affairs in order, as they say. So I dropped my grandparents off at their home in Newark and I was walking back to my car. And it's one of these things where you don't, you know, you're making mistakes and you don't stop and reflect. 
But nevertheless, I walked down, I walked out of the house and they lived at the time across the street from what used to be a housing project that was slated to be demolished, but there was still standing and people were still using it for nefarious reasons. Nevertheless, as I was walking across the street, I saw this old Chevy Nova coming up, didn't trigger um, right away that this could be a problem. I got my car, took a hundred dollar bill out of my wallet, remember it like yesterday, and that was going to be for gas and tolls. And I put it in a visor. And by this point, I looked over and these three guys and this beat up Nova right next to me. And, and it all came crashing. Like I just made a major mistake. I'm about to get robbed. So I um, put the car in reverse. And as I was just to back out of my parking uh, spot, they got out of the car and I could see the guy closest to me had a gun in his hand. So at that point I floored it. He raised the, the weapon shot. The bullet went behind. It came in through the, the court, um, the door, the driver's side door went just behind me on my left side into the rear seat of the car. Uh, at that point, I figured it was over. I got out, said, you know what? You got the car, I threw the keys in. I said, there's a $100 uh, bill on the visor, have a nice life or a day or something sarcastic. And as I was walking towards the um, my grandparents' house, they say, yeah, we're taking you too. And the fight was on. And so we were, we were fighting in the street and, and they, they clearly won. But when they got me to the car, they put handcuffs on me. So I'm thinking, well, maybe these guys are cops. So I started saying, hey, are you guys cops? You know, because it's still at this point, they didn't identify themselves and they had, you know, beards and, and long hair and such. And they kept saying, you know who we are, shut up. So this was the routine all the way down to the police station. Uh, and finally, when we got in the station, I spoke with a person whom they identified as a supervisor. So I, I, I told them, Hey, I think your guys made a mistake. Call my former supervisor. Uh, he could vouch for me. And he, he did. And he came back and he says, oh, you're right. We made a mistake. He took the cuffs off. He says, really sorry. And the guy looked me square in my face and said, yeah, but you know, we got to charge you, right? I'm like, charge me for what? Wow. He says, well, you you know, you assaulted my officers. I said, oh, you assault your officers. They shot at me. And so we, we got in a little bit of argument, but the bottom line is I was being charged. So they charged me with three counts of aggravated assault on police officer. I, uh, through the help of my grandfather, we got a lawyer and we made an internal affairs complaint. We actually, uh, the city actually brought criminal charges against them. And so um, everything went to grand jury. And this is what I was referring to earlier. Now, this is, you know, months later, we're sitting in the, in the courthouse for a grand jury. And um, I was feeling pretty dejected. And, and I had long since been done with law enforcement, you know, talked to my friends about the fact that I was never going to do that. So um, they uh, sitting there and I had my head down and my grandfather says, you know what, hold your head up. And it's one of those like, what? He says, just hold your head up. You did nothing wrong. In fact, you want to be a police officer? you be a police officer. You're already a better man than these people ever be. So you be the best police officer you could possibly be. Because I had not spoken with him about it since then. And, and that was like the light bulb moment for me. So after grand jury, uh, both sides were was called no bill, which means that they didn't find probable cause for either side to proceed with um, their criminal case. So all charges were dismissed. We did sue and we did settle. But I decided I was going to do this. I was going to be a police officer, but it was for a different reason now. Before it was just to go to college. Now I wanted to be a better police officer. And I did. I, I worked my way. Uh, I didn't go back to the state. Well, I went back, but I didn't graduate from the state police academy. I ended up going to a local academy. Uh, I became a sheriff's officer and uh, did a couple couple stations, uh, Cumberland County and then Atlantic County, all within my district. And then I uh, joined the prosecutor's office in uh I did the, the bulk of my career there and worked my way up to captain. And that's where I retired. Wow. Wow. What a story. 
when we hear and read the stories, these terrible stories, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, uh, Philando Castile, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, Dante Wright, and the list goes on. Every story is a, it must resonate with you on a very, very different level, very personally. It does. And so all, all those stories and more, you know, touch me each and every time. And I, I'll tell you, when I first heard of George Floyd, it was just a little article in New York Daily News on, on their website. And I kept looking, uh, I had a TV, in my, I have a TV in my office and I kept looking for more and it wasn't there. And then at the end of the, well, the, the second day, at the end of Meet the Press Daily, there was like a little Chuck Todd, a little blurb about it. And I'm thinking, man, this is, this is crazy. And so as it picked up steam and the story became more uh, widespread uh, and we had an opportunity to see the full video, at least what we thought, the eight minutes and uh, 40 uh, some odd seconds, um, I realized that that could have been me. That could have been me. I was one of the lucky ones that I lived. And I was extremely moved by it, so much so that I immediately just had to do something. And so I start writing a training reform outline. I uh, put pen to paper. I called a friend of mine who is now um, the chief of detectives uh, in my former uh, agency. And I said, hey, you know, I got this outline. He says, he says, you know, this is your timing's perfect. This is a hotbed issue. Send it to me. You know, we're working with statewide. Everybody's trying to come up with um, ideas and uh, address some of the issues. So that, so I sent it to him and, um, you know, occasionally we talk about it, but that was like the, the seed that was planted. Uh, I didn't realize it for uh, running for Congress, but it, it bothered me so bad and no one was talking about making change and, and all the protesting and, and, you know, my wife and I, and, and my uh, daughter, we all went out and my, my youngest daughter, we went out and we protested my son who's in DC, he was protesting and, you know, just participating. And, um, I just didn't see anything coming out of it other than, you know, we're out there protesting. So as time went on, other influences came about, but that was a strong one for my decision to run for Congress. Oh, boy. Ironically, I had a very similar experience in my life when I was 22. In 1971, I guess I was 24, um, I had a business in Coney Island. It was a 24-hour day business, but the bulk of the business was nighttime. And my practice, and it was a cash business. My practice was to uh, knock off at about 2 a.m., uh, take my cash, and we generated a lot of garbage in the business and carry the garbage on my way home to the dump. Well, I was walking on Surf Avenue, which is the big street in Coney Island, uh, and a car is tailing me going in the wrong direction of traffic. And I had worked... 16, 18 hours for the two, 300 bucks that was in my pocket. So I was very um, hypervigilant. Plus you had a kid that was about to be born. <laughs> Corey was born <laughs> that summer. Um, he was my second kid at the age of 24. So I looked over at the car and the minute they saw that I saw them, the guy behind the wheel said, get the F over here, kid. And I said, who the F wants me to get over there? And in about 30 seconds, I had two six foot two guys pointing guns in my ribs. Long story short, they turned out to be plainclothes cops who thought I had broken into someplace and 
was going away with the, the stuff. And, and it dawned on me if this had been like two hours earlier, I would have run and they probably would have shot me. Yeah. Or if I was black, they would have shot me. And it's something that stood with me for my whole life. But I wanted to ask you a question. Sure. As a guy, as a high school guidance counselor, I work mostly with minority kids and they had very similar experiences with black officers as they did with white officers. And I wanted to ask you about that. Did you see any difference in the way black cops treat black teens and white cops treat black teens? So I'll say this and and that, uh, you know, Keep in mind, the bulk of my career, I was a, I was in plain clothes. I was a detective, so I didn't work patrol like, um, uh, you know, the, the people you see in uniform in marked cars. Um, but I nevertheless observe other officers, and I have seen uh, black officers, uh, particularly. I, I, I talk about an incident where, um, although it was a white supervisor who. Um, was the catalyst behind this whole incident. It was a black officer that was at the center of it. And what happened was that, you know, we go into these projects um, and low income housing and, you know, and that, that feeds into another area that we'll talk about in a minute, but the, the, we went into these projects and, and you're not always welcome there, at least not by the, the people who are most vocal. And this one particular uh, supervisor, he didn't work for my agency, he worked for one we were working with, but he had arranged for this black officer who was fairly new on a job to box a local resident. And so they formed a circle around and these two guys were going toe to toe. And my partner and I uh, didn't realize what was happening initially because we were, we were doing our job. And so when we walked over and I saw what was happening, I immediately broke it up and I did report it. And I, I, you know, I wrote a memo about it. Uh, but I did have an opportunity later on to talk to the young officer because I didn't want him to go on that, that path. And so I said, you know, why, why on earth would you think that was okay? And he says, well, you know, SAR said that, that this, this was cool. We could, we could do it this way. And it dawned on me that there's no, when it comes to violating people's rights, there's no safeguard. It's just about the, because you're, you're the same race. It's, more to do with just pure ignorance and lack of respect. One of the, the, the three big things you hear me say over and over again is if we don't have accountability, transparency, and this is the big one, a connection with the community, regardless of race, you're going to have incidents like that and like uh, what Mr. Floyd, Mr. Brown, Mr. Green in, in Louisiana, it's because it's that, dis- that detachment. and. Yes, it sometimes is and often is people of color who are victims of it, but it's also people who are of lower economic standing that are also victim of it. And I get pushback from from other officers and they'll say, well, you know, number wise, uh, there are more white men who unarmed white men shot by police than there are blacks. And, and you know, I point out the obvious about the, the percentages and ratio. But I also point out the fact that what was the economic status, social economic status of the unarmed white man? I bet you, you know, a, a dollar each case, it was a lower economic status because that also causes this weird detachment on a humanity level 
that I think leads a lot of officers to, to engage in that poor behavior. And until we, one, recognize it and start training it out of the system, and quite frankly, we need to address that, you know, we have this thing called the blue line, right? We hear about it all the time. And the blue line is about, I, I got your back, you got my back, if we are in a situation dealing with a bad person. It's not, it was never intended to be, I will cover you if you break the law. That's not the purpose of it. And so it somehow has morphed into that and it somehow became this thing where no one informs. And we have to attack that square on with a law that says, if Tim and Corey are on patrol together and Tim violates somebody's rights and Corey says nothing, then even if we don't make the case against Tim for what he did, we're going to make a case against Corey for failing to report it and failing to intervene, a duty to act. And that's the way we combat the blue line, because Corey has to think, I'm not going to prison because this guy wants to beat on people or he has some some racial issues, or he has issues with people who are poor, or just look don't look like him, or he has some boogeyman images of people because he doesn't have a clue about the people he's policing. And that yet is another point about that attitude of your policing, as opposed to your protecting. We will not get past this. And so those are some of the things that I would like to push. And those are the things we could push on to federal officers quite easily through legislation. And we could then attach money to retraining and revamping to encourage states, local and state agencies to get on board with the idea. So that, I think that's how we address that issue. And I know we're a million miles, so I'll say simply, because I hate when politicians don't answer the question. Yes, I've seen it. And, and yes, it's a problem, just as it is with people of different race. Something that I experienced early in my career and continued to experience throughout a 37-year career working with minority kids. Um, when people who come from a middle class or upper class background find themselves in an environment that's strange to them, a lower, you know, impoverished environment, a black environment, and now you're a white person, they become hypervigilant. They become very, very sensitive and feel very threatened by very minor uh, stimuli. I think part of the training is to teach people how to feel comfortable, secure, and normalize an environment that at the beginning is unusual to them. Because that's what happened to me. After a period of time, color didn't register with me when I was talking to a kid. And I found that kids really didn't relate to me based on my color. They related to me based on how I treated them. And I think that could be an important part of training in policing, especially. I think that goes to the point of something I definitely want to ask you about more. I've heard you talk about um, a requirement, uh, a really healthy requirement uh, in any kind of police training is having having. Uh, officers or officers in training spend a lot of time in the community. I want to ask you about that in a second. But before we leave this other point, I'd really like you to tease out a little bit more. It seems like it seems that one could draw a straight line from your personal experiences of, of uh, surviving police brutality uh, to your work as a, a detective and prosecutor, sitting now civil rights attorney. How has the experience combined with all of these experiences informed your view, 
just tease it out a little bit more how they informed your views of police reform and more specifically if you were to be elected and serve the people of New Jersey's second district what what is realistic in terms of uh, reform at a legislative level so great question by the way and my experience is i think gives me a uh, increased sense of empathy and sympathy because i don't have to just empathize i've i've done i've experienced a lot of those experiences that people uh, go through and you know, I look through my career, my, my trajectory as Tim Alexander and as uh, all those other jobs and as a father of three beautiful children and a husband of a beautiful wife. And I see how I picked up little things along the line that brought me to this point today. And all that means is this, that my experiences will help me or well, has helped me understand the issues I have no biases to bring to the table in this regard. Uh, And I'm always careful people say they have no biases because that's not true. But uh, they're, you know, to recognize that we can fix this issue without burning down the house. We can fix this issue. There's a big movement uh, to defund the police. And I know that has different meanings for different people, but the bottom line is that's not the way to go. We can do this. I I promise you uh, to, to anyone listening to this, this can be done without burning down a house or blowing up the system entirely. Training, yes, we have to totally blow that up. And I think that bringing that to the district is in a, a way that gives people a sense of, of security, that they don't have to worry that something bad is going to happen when they get pulled over for a broken taillight. Right. Now, that's not my, you know, my entire platform. In fact, leading uh, if you look at my website, if you look at, if you just ask me, I'll tell you that my number one issue right now is jobs and it's infrastructure. And it's about moving responsibly away from fossil fuels to green energy and it's security. And when people say, what do you mean by security? I, that's when I get to tell them about the fact that you shouldn't go into a panic because a police officer is pulling you over. And now you're looking, you're, you know, you're going five miles an hour and you're looking for a well-lit place or a populated place as if you're being, you know, stalked by somebody. And that doesn't, that's to me, it, it baffles my, I guess my senses and that, how can more people in law enforcement not be alarmed by that? That it, That's how people are reacting to law enforcement. We can fix that. And, you know, quite honestly, Corey, we can do that probably with, if we get past the resistance, we could do that relatively quickly over a few years. And then we could really focus in, which is going to be a harder uh, issue, of switching away from fossil fuels and, and bringing renewables to the area and bringing jobs, sustainable jobs that pay well, that give people a future. Those are the things I'm trying to accomplish. And I think that everything I've experienced has put me on that trajectory to do those things. And by the way, I, I'm also uh, extremely, you know, this is a perfect show for me because I am definitely a man of faith. And my belief is part of my DNA is who I am. And so, um, I thought you looked you know, Jewish, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we could spend a whole nother show about that aspect. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, as I remind, uh, my, my fellow Christians all the time that Jesus was born, lived and died as a Jew. Absolutely. So, 
you got to recognize that and, and understand, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm off on a tangent, but uh, understand uh, that we can't talk about Christianity if we're not talking about Judaism. That's period. But that's, you know, perhaps a, another uh, conversation. We'll have you back which, for that one. We'll have you for the religious uh, I would, special. I would love it uh, because I listen to you guys talk about it all the time and I'm screaming at the radio. Yes. Yes. Finally, somebody's <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> but that aside, back to your point uh, or to your original question, um, all those experiences have put me where I am today. And I think that that's how I serve the people of second uh, congressional district in New Jersey, uh, recognizing their needs, but also anticipating future problems. Yeah. Wow. I, I can't believe we're a half hour into the conversation and I, I, there's still so much of your biography that I want to cover. I mean, because I, I haven't heard you talk much about this, but I was just looking at the timeline and it looks like you, you were in a uh, full-time profession, working full-time detective, captain, and you put yourself through undergrad, graduate, you got, you got your MBA, if, if, I, if I understand it correctly. And then you went to law school. You're like one of the most educated people I know. And this is all while you're working full time. How did that all, how did you make, why, why did you make that decision? And how did you make that all happen? So uh, it's, it's an interesting story, right? Because shifting away uh, from the 18 year old kid who was hellbent on being an aeronautical uh, engineer to now I'm like a diehard law enforcement officer. So uh, my, all my emphasis, all my weight was into my career. And I worked hard. I, I did everything. There was no testing in my agency. It was all appointments by the prosecutor. And it was based on hard work. It was based on, you had productivity on the table, as they say. So uh, anyhow, I um, was able to get uh, promoted to a sergeant, I think within five years of joining the agency and, and did some hard work there and, and had some really tough assignments. My entire career was basically three units that I kept rotating in as I got promoted. And it was narcotics, homicide and gangs, and then back to narcotics and back to homicide. And again, and as I went up the ranks. So um, when I made Lieutenant, the prosecutor called me and he said, um, Hey, you know, congratulations, you're going to be promoted to Lieutenant. And uh, I want you to get a degree. And I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, I knew the other guys who were getting promoted and they didn't have degrees. So I wasn't really worried about it. I didn't think he was going to push the issue. And I was wrong. <laughs> he pushed the issue a lot. So finally, I, I decided, well, I better go get a degree, but I wasn't going to do one in criminal justice because I was thinking in the future now, right? Well, you know, was it, what do I need to, when I can't do this job anymore, what do I need to do to prepare myself for the day that I retire? So I, I thought business was the best way to go, uh, management particularly. So I, I got a degree in uh, business management from Drexel University, as you know. And, um, at that point, I'm like, well, this is this is nice, and it would be great if I was 22, but or 24, but I need something a little bit more substance. So, I decided I better get an MBA, and um, I went through that process, got into the MBA program, and it was great. And I graduated, and then the economic collapse happened. So, even though I was looking to retire at that point, I was going to retire early. I was competing with, and, and I was very fortunate that I had uh, good conversations with hiring. Uh, agents that, hey, you know, you're competing with people who are out of the job, out of a job who had 30 years in the private sector. We would have to teach you, you know, you're coming from government and we would have to teach you all these things. And after about two or three of those conversations, I decided I better get something a little bit more with a license and um, talk to my wife about perhaps becoming a, a physician's assistant because I thought that was neat. And she's like, well, you know, you always talk about civil rights. 
you know, why don't you become a lawyer? And I said, uh, you know, it's not a bad idea, but I'm not going to do civil rights. I'll, I'll, I'll stay with uh, maybe security litigations because I'm going to make a ton of money. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I did. I, I, I uh, got into law school and I pursued um, a lot of business courses and SEC stuff. And, and, and then I took one seminar on civil, civil rights and I'm like, all right, I'm done with that. I think I'm going to do civil rights. So uh, I was talking to a couple of mentors and it's like, well, you got to get trial experience, you know, and at your age, and, and truthfully, I was in my forties at your age, you're going to have to uh, figure that out. So didn't think any much, much of it finished law school and, and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And I, I met the district attorney for Philadelphia at a function and just talking to him in general. And he says, well, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm, I'm thinking about retiring next year. And he says, well, great. You're going to come work for me. Wow. And uh, that's exactly how it happened. And sure enough, I got tons of trial experience working in Philadelphia. And I was really educated in the way the imbalances of the criminal justice system, more so than as a police officer in, in the Philadelphia court system. And I start reacting to it. And I start working with more so with uh, defense attorneys, we had this score system and I wanted to make sure that I knew everything I could uh, before I wrote a sentencing memorandum and uh, talking to the judges. And, and it just dawned on me that there was this gross imbalance. And I was talking to a defense attorney about it and he says, you do not belong in the prosecutor's or the DA's office. He says, why don't you go to the solicitor's office and you could do civil rights there. And um, after you do that for a few years, you could then go into private practice. I said, okay. He says, all right, I'm gonna make a phone call for you. And next thing you know, I'm hired at the solicitor's office. So uh, I got to tell you, I was defending police officers and correction officers. It was the best job I had in my life. And the reason it was so great was because I got all the facts and then I got to bring my experiences to it. And I could tell, you know, the BS from the, 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 Hey, we got a problem here cases. And it, it was a really, really very well run. And I would go down to talk to my, my chief, the chief of my unit, and I would say, um, hey, I got this case here and uh, I'm going to need the checkbook versus I have this case here and we're going to have to try it. And it worked out great. I tried a lot of cases in the DA's office. I was only there for a few months. I tried two cases in federal court, a couple of cases in state court, a ton of arbitrations. Uh, I was constant and I was working hard because I loved it. But, the, you know. Uh, it got to a point where we had to have residency in Philly and we kept our home in New Jersey. And one day my wife looked at me, she says, okay, well, I just did the bills and I just got a question for you. How much longer is your little experiment going to go? Because it's starting to cost us some money. <laughs> so I said, okay, I think I better go find a job uh, in a private sector. And uh, I did do a stint as a uh, non-civil rights area and I didn't like it so much. So I got right back into it, uh, coming back to Jersey and the rest, as they say, is history. Can I ask you a question that has to do with money and exactly the area you're talking about? This is something that this is something that I struggle with personally. Um, I happen to think the system of cash bail is one of the worst offenses of systemic racism and bigotry against poor people that the system has in place. And I'd love to see it abolished. But I can't think of any other way of guaranteeing accused people will show up for their court dates. What alternative is there to cash bail? 
So, you know, New Jersey did away with cash bail and we, we have it. Obviously, there's still some exceptions and violent crimes, of course, is, is the exception, but there's no bail. Right. So with respect to cash bail, uh, the program here, um, we, we have seen a since 2017, I believe, about a 10 percent de- decrease in crime. So there isn't a direct finger pointing back to doing away with cash bail to that. But the reality is that that whole boogeyman persona that, oh, you do away with it, you're going to flood the streets with criminals and it's just going to be mayhem, didn't, didn't materialize it here. We, we had, like I said, a 10% decrease. We did have a, um, a 3.3% increase in no-shows and a 1% increase in people out on bail or not not detained, that is. they About 1% of them committed new crimes. I don't have the statistic for what it was before with people on bail committing new crimes, but I can tell you from my experience, I know that if we, as a police officer, going back to my days, particularly working with uh, drug offenders, once they got out on bail, they went right back to selling drugs. So. Right. That didn't really, that wasn't a deterrent because that was, in many instances, selling drugs was their only source of income and that was their survival. So they had no other choice. But the, the, all the, the, the ills that were pointed to that what would happen in, in New Jersey didn't materialize. And so I agree with you that the, the, the cash bail system created great disparities and oftentimes cash bails were used, in my opinion, as, a, as an additional form, a, a, like a free pass at punishment, because you committed a crime and notwithstanding your ability to pay the, the, the bail, we're going to make an example out of you. And I'm going to give Rikers you some Rikers Island is filled with these people. Right. And, and by the way, there's, I think there's 6,000 um, fewer inmates in New Jersey pre, pre-trial detainees as a result of doing away with that system. So do the math, right? We have a 6,000 wow. fewer detainee, pre-trial, pre-trial detainees, and we have a 10% decrease in violent crimes, and we have a 3.3% a, a in, in uptick in people not showing up. I think the, the math speaks for itself, and, and that's not a bad outcome. Um, yeah. We still have a huge disproportion of people of color as far as the representation of those in jail. Uh, and that means that we have a long way to go. One of the things I point out, not necessarily in New Jersey, but I use it as a, as a, a global example, you know, when, when arguing about systemic racism in the criminal justice system, understanding what it is, you know, one of the things that I was critical of of Andrew when he debated Amy Kennedy, the person who ran against him uh, in 2020. If Andrew is your opponent, we should tell the My opponent, yes. Well, we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about that quite a bit in just a second. Yeah. Well, one of the things he, he said during the debate, uh, the question was asked, do you believe that there's systemic racism in law enforcement? And he gave this crazy uh, example. You know, he said, well, what's systemic racism? You know, I ask people all the time. I'm thinking, what do you mean you ask some people all the time? You're 60 some years old. You don't know what that means. And so he said, um, gave some crazy definition. And he says, and if that's what systemic racism is, I don't, I don't believe it exists. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, how could you possibly give that answer I don't care if you are a Republican, it, that, that doesn't make you blind to history and, and, and to the current uh, situation. It, it just blew my mind. But to the point is that systemic racism, racism is in a, just interwoven uh, in our criminal justice system. And it, again, needs to be eradicated and rooted out. We have to start talking about it, though. So, man, we could, we could talk about police reform 
training, recruiting. We haven't even gotten into to that, but I do want to talk quite a bit about New Jersey O2 because it is a district that has a lot of similarities to quite a few other districts in the country. So let me just contextualize this for the folks around the country and around the world that are listening, as well as hopefully we'll get a lot of folks in New Jersey O2 that are listening as well. Currently represented by Jeff Andrew, who was initially elected as a Democrat in the 2018 election. Uh, and then just about a year later, barely a year later, he became Trumpified mysteriously. I don't know where that came from, but you know, and now he's not just Trumpified. Uh, I'll just say it. I mean, he's flat out full fledged QAnon. He signed the amicus brief for the Texas AG's crazy lawsuit. He voted to object to the certification electoral college votes. Uh, he made he's continued to make false and irresponsible public statements against our, the democratic system, against elections, voted against the impeachment of Donald Trump for inciting the insurrection. Um, he even voted against this bipartisan commission that was negotiated by by his Republican colleague uh, to look into the events January uh, 6th. Uh, so he won in 2020 to get seated again, but he won with less than 52 percent of the vote. So. You know, as someone who's very, very familiar with that district, this is more just kind of a prognostication, political junkie question. I wonder how many who voted for him this time around in 2020 might, given given the context of everything that's happened since January 6th, I wonder uh, what you think, how many of those folks might be questioning their votes given his support of the insurrection? Well, that's a great question too. And, and, I think that there was a widespread concern and, and, uh, and, and certainly unwarranted with Black Lives Matter and with protesting and uh, unfortunately some of the looting and rioting. And I think he was able to capitalize on that mm. and he was able to falsely associate his opponent to it um, because she was not, you know, I, I met Miss Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy and she's, she's a, a wonderful person. He just was able to, to push uh, this negative view of her. And I think that, and, and on, on top of that, right, they, they did the old political playbook of making people scared to death of something that they don't quite understand and then pointing to someone to say, and that's the person who you should blame for it. So I think people now are more educated. I think with the conviction of uh, Derek Chauvin that, that there is a sense of understanding more, not with everybody, of course, but I think a, a wider spread understanding of the need for uh, uh, justice reform, but also people, you know, are hurting in this district, right? And what is one of the things that, that Van Drew did? He first was for uh, COVID relief and, and the American rescue plan uh, when it was Donald Trump. In fact, he was uh, uh, in favor of it when Donald Trump wanted to increase it from 600 to 2000. But then all of a sudden, Joe Biden comes to office. People are no less hurting in this district because we are we have a large percentage of it percentage of our, our workforce is dependent on tourism that couldn't exist. Businesses folded, went, went under, and he voted to block that. And, and he can't undo that. He can't unring that bell. And I think that's going to resonate differently, that we didn't have that going on in 2020, that we now have this record of how he has pushed to um, and not just that, but he flip flop on so many critical issues, extending the uh, period for ratification for the ERA and some of his other uh, crazy things, uh, the climate change, immigration, uh, equal pay between genders. All that was um, 
uh, he's flip-flopped on, some of which he's co-sponsored. So that's his record now going into 2022. And that's what we're going to present to the, the voters here, that who's Van Drew? I mean, that's actually like a thing. That's a, that's a movement out here um, because he flip-flops so much. You, yeah. you can't identify the guy. And, you know, one of the things you hear me say on record is that I believe he has the political backbone of water because he <laughs> molds, he contorts to whatever he thinks is going to keep him uh, in office. And this, this love affair with the former president, he's doubling down on. So, I can't think of a more destructive and disruptive person to our political system and our way of life and our values than Donald Trump. And yet Jeff Andrew is signed on full steam ahead yeah. uh, with the crazy train. Yeah, I'm encouraged that that you decided to run because there are certain issues that nobody's going to. No, nobody can, nobody's going to trump you on, so to speak. I mean, you know, with police reform, uh, you know, the uh, several uh, Trumpian Republicans used the uh, defund the police narrative to really cut out the legs from their Democratic opponents. But, you know, not only did you have you spent a lifetime in, in um, law enforcement, but you spent part of your time as an attorney defending officers uh, and correction officers and the city of Philadelphia. I would like to, to ask you about another few issues. Uh, sure. Congressman Van Drew was just appointed to the Homeland Security Committee, uh, which seems ironic given his record on some, I, I would argue, pretty pressing Homeland Security issues. <laughs> um, another committee he was named to is the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And I know that infrastructure is a big issue for you. Your differences with Van Drew on Homeland Security, especially violent domestic extremism, are quite stark. So I'd like you to speak to that, but also with regard to his other committee, do you have a sense of where you and the current congressman align or diverge on infrastructure? Sure. And, and, and before we get into that, let me just touch briefly on Homeland Security and uh, that, you know, it's the lie that led to the insurrection. Yeah. And that, you know, we have these these right wing uh, extremists who uh, part of the storming of the Capitol and Jeff Andrew, he he brought in on that. And, you know, it's striking to me when I watched him. This is this is the the lead in, excuse me. This is the lead in on when I uh, decided to run is that he here we are on January 6th and Van Drew and others are on the floor trying to block bringing in the electoral college from Arizona and Pennsylvania. And then we, we get it. We see the attack occur. Incidentally, my daughter who uh, just had heart transplant surgery a day after Christmas, the first coherent phone call we received from her was on that day. And she called my cell phone. We were shocked because we've been getting calls from the nurse. My wife, my wife was in my office and I answered the phone and as clear as day, Dad, do you see what's happening in Washington wow. right now? And we were like, whoa, you know, let's talk about something else. But nevertheless, that that was a moment for me. And, you know, we lost a, a police officer uh, that day. We lost another one to suicide after that. A young woman lost her life uh, because she believed the big lie. And Van Drew was all part of that. And then what does he do after they literally pick up the dead and police the building? He goes right back at it. So the fact that this guy is on Homeland Security, 
uh, when he won't even support an investigation into what happened, what led up to that. There is a we, we know there's another lie, right, that, well, there was uh, Antifa and it was Black Lives Matter and, that, you know, it was a false flag operation. OK, if that's your hypothesis, run with it. Now, let's investigate that and see if it's true. We know it's not, but let's investigate it. No, 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 no. We don't need to investigate it. Why not? Because, you know, wouldn't you want to verify that, that what you're saying is true, that, 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 that he's on Homeland Security? I, I just I find it, uh, you know, shocking, to be honest with you. And, and to infrastructure, yes, you know, Mr. Van Drew has been a politician for 20 years, uh, first in New Jersey as, uh, as on a state level and now uh, um, as a congressman representing this district. And we have had a need for um, infrastructure changes in this district for a very long time, just like everywhere else in the country. And I can't point to any projects that he brought to bear that, that would help improve that. You know, we have a, a, a potential for a wind farm off the coast, and this company is going to bring in approximately 200 um, turbines, uh, wind turbines. It's a lot uh, of jobs. There's a lot of jobs and there's a there's a there's an issue with the fishermen, the fishermen, the the, the way they were going to position these things they're, that they're uh, approximately a mile apart. But there's a, a law, federal law that says you can't operate a boat within a quarter mile of them. So that leaves the fishermen with a quarter mile. I'm sorry, half a mile that they have a hard time turning and navigating around in that. So how about we bring them to the table as a congressman? I would bring the party to the table and say, look, let's figure this out. What do we have to do? to make this work for the fishermen. And, and you know, another big issue down there in Cape May, this is Mr. Van Drew's backyard, is that there's a, a bridge, a drawbridge that is crumbling. And if that bridge fails, mm. none of those fishermen could get out to go do their craft. So not only does that hurt them in the, financially, that hurts our, our um, food supply. So these are the things that, that, you know, the differences that I think that are important to people to second, that Mr. Van Drew's just, just, failed on with with respect to infrastructure. And the last thing I'll say to this is for how many years we've had the Atlantic City International Airport, the third longest runway in the country, my understanding, at one point when a shuttle program was running, there there was a third alternative for landing the shuttle. It's been there for, for, for as long as I can remember. And there is no light rail from the Atlantic City International Airport, which is in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, to Atlantic City. It's mind boggling that if I if I were uh, I don't care who the president was, if if he or she were speaking of bringing uh, one or two trillion dollars uh, of infrastructure money, I'd be salivating. I am now in that we could get some of that money to actually connect Atlantic City International Airport to Atlantic City. <laughs> think of the jobs we can do and, yeah. and bring to the area. Think of think if we go the other way. Because we do have heavy diesel that runs to uh, Philadelphia. But what if we had light rail that ran to to the towns leading up to Philadelphia? And what if we had light diesel, I'm sorry, light um, rail running into the other parts of the district to bring people, give them access to all these jobs I've been talking about, uh, as well as, you know, I want to see us get away from the, the, the diesel buses. I know that they're supposedly better than, than uh, gasoline, but how about we go to battery? We get smaller buses. We run them more frequently. We get to hire more people and we give people access to, to things they didn't have access to before. I want to bring all these jobs, but they can't get to them 
because this is a rural area overall. Uh, so we got to make sure that we have these things in place that we could we could run buses on a regular cycle. And by the way, uh, a lot of people live off the shore. They would love to be able to say, okay, I know the bus runs every hour or every every uh, half hour and, and uh, you know, or during peak period, maybe it comes a little bit more frequently. I could go down to the beach. I could hang out at the boardwalk uh, as, as long as I want. And I know, oh, I got 15 minutes. Let me start walking back and I'll catch the bus back home. How wonderful would that be? Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, think of the people we're putting to work, but also we're bringing tourism dollars to, to our area. And we could go on and on, you know, that Mr. Van Drew, uh, I would say this uh, about all our elected officials, you know, if I could figure this stuff out sitting at my kitchen table and the people in Washington have these very impressive resumes, why can't they? And then when I see Congressman Van Drew, I get the, I get that, you know, I understand now because it's not about serving the people. It's about self-serving. It's about serving or pledging your loyalty to a man, Yeah. Uh, not, not the constitution, not the state, not the district, but to a man. It just blows my mind. Yeah. Hear, hearing you talk, um, a man who went bankrupt in Atlantic City, by the way. <laughs> yeah, hey, see, that's why that's why one of the reasons that your district is so uh, I'm so intrigued by your district. I graduated high school in 89. So a couple of my buddies, their first jobs out of high school, you know, they were starting to build businesses. I had a buddy who started a plumbing business, a buddy who started a landscaping business. And in a couple instances, their first big projects were working on the Taj. Uh, or working on other Trump properties. And I don't know two guys who were victims of the, you know, of, of what they Trump got stiffed. Does. Yeah. You know, they, they, got they got stiffed. stiffed, you know, they had to pay their yeah. guys. Their good guys are paying their guys who, who are on their, on their crews. But meanwhile, one guy never got paid at all. Another guy had to wait, you know, 12 to 18 months just to get 30 cents on the dollar. But by then his business was already destroyed. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm really encouraged to hear you have this holistic view and I can see how, Issues like infrastructure, renewable energy, jobs, they're all intertwined. They all work together. And, and it's encouraging to hear you thinking about all of that and how they all work together. But you, you touched upon one other issue that I'd like to um, hear a little bit more about, and that is healthcare. You know, us all having gone through the pandemic, still going through it in a lot of ways, the need for quality, affordable healthcare is something that hit home way too closely for you. You mentioned your daughter. First of all, give us an update. Tell us how she's doing. That sounds like a major, major scare. Uh, thankful that you know she she also served uh, in the police, police uh, in law enforcement. So how's she doing? And then tell us a little bit about what you're proposing with regard to health care if you were to be elected. So thank you for asking about my daughter. She's doing great. Um, she, she's um, out of cardio rehab. She's still critical for the first year, but she's doing everything she's supposed to do. And she's um, graduated to the next level of um, physical therapy. So couldn't be prouder of her. She's, she's, uh, she's a trooper. She's a fighter and she's getting it done. You know, I'll tell you about that. Um, you know, my concern with affordable care and access to it. So my daughter was a police officer, as we just said, and in April of 2019, she couldn't do the job anymore. And so she had to go on leave. You can only be out in New Jersey. You can only be out for one year in law enforcement. After that, you have to resign or you'll be terminated. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. The, the, the law only allows you one year out. So uh, she was out in April of 2020 or, or May or whatever that, that the actual full year ran. So she was out of, uh, she, she lost her health insurance too. So now she couldn't afford COBRA because she didn't have a sufficient source of, of income. So um, 
she ended up going on Medicaid and her health kept deteriorating and she was going to a hospital that I think is a, is a, is a fine hospital, but unfortunately they weren't getting, they weren't improving her situation. And uh, finally uh, she was in the hospital for like her second or third month long stay. And we had, uh, my wife and I said, you know, we got to get her somewhere else. So we start making phone calls and we got her um, an appointment at Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And so the plan was as soon as she gets out of the hospital, we we're going to get her right over to Penn. And we had the appointment schedule and everything's great, except she had another episode and she had to go back in the hospital. So she was, she was, she missed her appointment and we were just be fluxed. And this is one of my God is great moments where there just happened to be a cardiac team doing a rotation through the hospital. Wow. And the, the doctor coming through was talking to my daughter and we were on a, on a, cause COVID was in force. And so we couldn't visit her. We were on speakerphone and my wife says, well, we really need to get her to Penn. We want to get her evaluated there. And he says, oh, well, I'm on Penn's transplant team. I'll wow. get over there tonight. And he arranged for transportation that night and got her to Penn. And within a matter of a week, she was doing way better, but it was, she was still too far gone to, to save the heart. So these, this hospital move at lightning pace. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. And they, they kept doing things. And then it got to the point where, okay, we're, we're, we're going to, we normally have these meetings on Tuesday, to discuss her, uh, you know, if she's eligible for a transplant, we're going to do hers Thursday. And so, Part of that process, we had to be interviewed to make sure she had the support mechanism. And we go through all these interviews and it's a, it's a four hour process. The last one was for, you know, it's, it's like going to college, right? You had to meet with financial aid at the end. And so the, uh, the young lady working in the department says, well, I gotta be honest with you, she's out of network and we don't think they're gonna pay. And, and if, she, if they don't pay, it was, I don't know, one point some million dollars for the surgery. And my wife and I, we literally sat at that table and in our kitchen, um, probably one or two o'clock in the morning, and we figured it out. You know, we're going to sell the house. Um, you know, we're going to get a small place. And, you know, we had everything mapped out what we we're going to do. We were not going to saddle this 33-year-old at the time with this hospital expense. You know, we prayed on it and we went to bed. And the next day we woke up and, and later that afternoon we got a call. Oh, Medicaid's going to pay. Wow. And nobody should go through that. Wow. Right. And so yeah. we were, we have a happy, yet another happy ending to that story because she didn't have the surgery and, and it all worked out. What I want to do is expand the uh, exchanges, or at least help uh, push for expansion of the exchanges. And the, the, the point of, of doing that is to create bigger exchanges and hopefully drive down the cost of care and also make it available for people uh, that there's no question that if the better care is across the river in another state, you can go there and you could get that care. And, and again, it's not disparaging to the, uh, the hospital my daughter was in. In fact, the, the team who did her surgery told us that that hospital was one of the best. Uh, it just didn't work out for us in that place. So the, the whole point of that and, and to Corey's question is we got to do a better job with, with this. And, you know, I think the, that we have to listen to the people, but we also have to bring uh, real solutions to the table. And I think expanding the exchanges is a real solution, is a doable solution, and it will have the effect of driving down the expense of healthcare. What's your daughter's name? I, I, I pray for um, people every morning and I'll put her on my prayer list. Well, thank you. Her name is Brittany. Brittany? Brittany, yep. Brittany's getting Brittany a Mishabayrach. 
All right. Nice. Yes. <laughs> nice. I, can, I can't wait for her to listen to this this uh, episode. Goes, Dad, I can't believe you did that. And, and then she's going to say, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do have a question. You know, again, going back to New Jersey 02, it is a purple district. It, it Cape May County, I couldn't get the, the numbers on the district as a whole, but I went in the counties and uh, in Cape May, Trump had 50% of the 57% of the vote. Atlantic County, Biden had 53 Cumberland, Biden had 52%. Salem County, Trump had 55%. So it was a real mixed bag. Uh, and indeed, uh, if you add all those four counties up, which I think are all part of, of that your district that you're running for, uh, Trump won, but he won by less than 500 votes out of almost 300,000. Um, and I ask, I ask the, I bring that up because I'm curious, one of my contentions with our representative is that he's representing this, this radical fringe and he's not really representing all of us. He's not representing the purple district that he was elected by. How would you, are there certain things where you would actively reach out to Republican colleagues, perhaps become part of the problem solvers caucus, just as one example, and understanding the people you talk, when we were talking about police reform, you talked about what a, um, how edifying and how, what an, um, productive part of training might be to have uh, cops and training on the ground in their communities, getting to, to know the human beings uh, in the communities where they serve. You know, there are human beings that vote Republican or, or maybe have different policy positions. What kinds of things would you do to represent those folks? So the proposals I put forth, they're for everyone. It doesn't matter your 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 party affiliation for for bringing better jobs, for bringing uh, improvements to infrastructure, to bringing safety to everybody. Because I think that the bulk of what I propose, and I can't think of anything that is partisan, it's all about improving lives of everyone. This whole blue state, red state, blue city, red city, it's nonsense. People, we're all one race, we're human race. We, we come in different shades and, and such, but the, the, the hard reality is that everything I'm proposing, everybody can latch on to. Yes, uh, I think our Cook Parson report is um, R plus four for the, the district. This, the state's D plus six, meaning that if it, it's obviously a blue state, but the, the district is leaning red or purple. But I don't want to work the fringes. I, I don't see... The, to me, that's just bickering and causing problems. We need to bring it to the center and bring everybody, bring opportunity for everybody to, to benefit from federal dollars. And that's what it boils down to. I believe uh, New Jersey sends um, more significantly more money to Washington than we get back. This infrastructure package is opportunity for us to, to bring more money back to this, to this district and make improvements for every single soul in this district without regard to their political affiliation, whether they love Trump or they hate Trump. The bottom line is this is about improving the lives of everybody here. That's what I'm trying to do. And it's not hyperbole because I'm in a, in a purple district. It's who I am. And it's about helping everybody. I don't ask people when I'm, when I'm trying to assist them, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where are you aligning uh, with politics? That I couldn't imagine doing that. Uh, I'd rather say, let's get this done and let's figure out a way to do it. And let's figure out a way to do it together. Uh, and if you're not with us, just stand aside. 
You don't, you don't have to be in opposition to us. Just stand aside. Let us get this done. We'll do the heavy work, you know, and then you can come in, you can eat the bread when it's baked. But for now, we're, we're going to do this. And, and I think that's, that's how I appeal to folks in this district. At least I'm praying on that. And, and uh, you know, if, if people say, no, nope, we want partisan divide, then I'm not their guy and, and they won't vote for me. Yeah. And that's their right. That's the right. You and know, that's, and right. It's, uh, that's how democracy works, or at least that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, that that is exactly how our, our uh, system should work. But I also hope that people don't do things to their own detriment just because of uh, political issues. Yeah, that, that will blow my mind, to be honest with you. Pops, what did I forget to ask? Or I, I monopolized a lot of this conversation. Just <laughs> what did I forget to ask? Or what did, what did I not let you ask yet? Well, one of the joys of being an old Jew <laughs> is having a son who's smarter than I am and asks better questions than I ask. Oh, that's nice. So uh, I think you're doing a great job, Corey. And I'm really impressed with, uh, I wish I lived in Southern Jersey, could vote for you, Tim. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, if you guys come down here for any reason, I hope you look me up because I will love to host you and, and uh, show you the, the, the beauty of this district. That'd be wonderful. That would be great, yeah. Is there anything you want to ask us? That was my last question. Did you want to ask us anything? You know, I, I, I listened to, I've listened to you guys quite a bit, but how do you, so... Do you know when you're not going to be in like, like you're going to be really opposed to issues that you want to bring forward to the, the guests? Um, and how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you two, I guess my question is, how do you two prepare to interview a guest about issues that you have totally polarized opinions on? Well, I might, there's two things where my head goes on that. One is I've invited Mike Garcia on the show multiple times at different stages um, and if you being the Mike local Garcia, congressman that, uh, is kind of like a Van Drew kind of, yeah, he's getting <laughs> worster and worster as my grandfather used to say, um, <laughs> but uh, my commitment to a Mike Garcia is to give him a fair hearing to allow him to share his life. Because listen, I really, really disagree with his votes on, uh, since January 6th and the subsequent votes that he's taken since. And a lot of what he's talking about, um, election integrity and starting a caucus about, you know, so I, there's there's issues I strongly, strongly disagree with them. And I think democracy is right at the top. Democracy itself is on the ballot in 2022. But I would he still it doesn't take away the fact that he served our country. He was a he was right. a fighter pilot in the Navy. It doesn't take away the fact that he's an impressive, uh, impressive human being that went to Annapolis, um, that had a very successful career in, in the business community. Um, so my commitment to to um, my to Congressman Garcia would be give him a platform to share that story. So instead of just, oh, that's the guy that voted this way or that way. All of a sudden now he's a human being. Now, it doesn't mean that I necessarily agree with him on these critical, critical issues. But I think if we humanize those folks uh, that have these stark, stark differences, I think maybe uh, maybe we can persuade each other. Maybe I can at least understand why you'd vote to overturn an election. Right. I don't think I could, but but maybe there's something else that's even more important that we could find some common ground on. I don't know. Uh, but the other thing with the other place where my head goes and dad, I'd love to hear your point of view on this is, you know, we've had a lot of training on having these issues that are transcendent, that 
we really disagree upon. The day that I came home, it was Thanksgiving morning of 2000. Um, my uh, Lisa was pregnant with our oldest, my daughter, and I told my dad uh, first, and then I told my mom that I was I was a Christian. And the the the, the years after that were fraught with great conflict on so many levels, emotional, spiritual, filial. When he says great conflict, he doesn't mean big conflict. It was big conflict. What he means is productive conflict. Well, it ended up being productive, but it had, I say transcendent because it was something that didn't just affect me or you. It affected us from generations past. You know, one of your letters opened up with, you know, I, I think I just told the story um, to somebody else. My, the invitation to my bar mitzvah, and I was bar mitzvah in an Orthodox synagogue, led the whole Torah service. And the invitation to it started with, as my father and grandfather before me. So, you know, I recognized in making, in coming to this um, revelation that this, it, it had implications that transcended generations, that we had people in my family uh, who's, who's, that the generation that I knew personally, who literally their sisters, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles, these were my sis, you know, cousins and uncles who literally died just simply because we're Jewish. So yeah. I, I bring this up because if my father and I could have these conversations over such, such serious conflicts, such serious differences, I think there's hope for us about, what the minimum wage is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think we could figure out the minimum wage. <laughs> so I, I, I think that's, that you're spot question. on, by the way, you know, as a family for you to, to be able to get through that, particularly understanding the, the importance of keeping the, you know, Jewish line going and your, your father is here and he's doing this wonderful <laughs> show with you and he's very supportive and, and, you know, it's clear that you're always his son and, and he loves you dearly. I, I think you're hundred percent correct. If we well, could I figure mean, this out. There's another piece. I, I, um, I respect both my sons, you know, they're, they're men. I raised them to, I, my wife raised them and I was part of the show to be independent people uh, to be moral, ethical people. And that's, for me, that's the bottom line. I mean, if, if you are a moral, ethical person and you're honest and trustworthy and have good values, everything else is cosmetics. You know, everything else is, um, can, everything else is negotiable. The bottom line is, is the quality of your soul and who you are as a human being and how you treat other human beings. Um, I think one of the things I learned in my professional training, I, I used to mediate disputes in the New York City public school system between gangs after murders, after wow. really serious violence. And one of the things that, that I had to learn was that conflict is not a bad thing. Conflict is a human thing. It's how you process conflict that matters. If you process it with respect and dignity toward the other person or the other group, no matter how much you disagree with them, then the conflict is a good thing. Even if you come out of it disagreeing with each other, you come out of it respecting and understanding each other just a little bit better. 
And um, that's what you, that's when a human being um, elevates himself in the way that God wants us to. That's how we bring light into the world. That's how we bring righteousness into the world. Kunala, baby. What were you going to say, Tim? So, you know, I used to say this all the time. People were talking about some some of my proposals and they would push back and say, well, how are you going to get that done? And I would say, well, you know, uh, we could send a, a rover, Mars rover to Mars. And from there, we could control it. And then we launch its own little helicopter around. We fly it all from Earth. If we could do that, we could figure out anything. Now I'm changing that to, let me tell you about these two guys, Corey and Ronald Nathan. <laughs> if they can do this and I'll tell the story, then we can do anything. That is impressive. And, and I, again, I'm floored at you too. It is a, a wonderful thing you have going here. And thank that's, you for letting me be a part of it. That's awesome. I, I thought of a story of if I met like somebody from another planet, a life form that we could communicate with from another universe or whatever, what would I use to, uh, to say, you know, humanity is a good thing. And the first thing that always comes to mind is Louis Armstrong's rendition of La Vie en Rose that, uh, I mean, you, you listen to that horn solo at the end and that, that one note that he hits at the end, you can't not think that like, there's something good about humanity. You know what I mean? So now we're going to do another episode about jazz. It sounds okay. like because uh, <laughs> we can start talking about Oscar Peterson and oh. Charlie Mingus and uh, so Louis our Armstrong. third dog is Charles Mingus the third. <laughs> there you go. So I mean, I hope he plays a hell of a bassist too. <laughs> oh man, this is oh yeah. I definitely I definitely if I could get you back and we'll just talk about religion and jazz because they're they're related. You want to see religion uh, at its best and democracy at its best. Just listen to jazz, and that's that's what yeah. it sounds like. So, we're, we're, we're already halfway through the conversation. I love it. Oh, man. <laughs> so um, I'm sorry. I, I, we can go off in a lot of different directions, but I really do want to have you back, especially as we get closer to the election. I, I'd love to have you back and I'd love to see, you. I, you know, if I get to Jersey, which I, I will, I'd love to, you know, uh, I don't know if uh, election wise, I'm allowed to buy a beer or whatever, but I, I'd love to do what I can. And just um, but speaking of which, how can people find you online if folks wanted to support your campaign? How can we find you? Sure. And so uh, I, I encourage people to just visit us at uh, timalexanderforcongress.com. That's our website. And uh, you could you could read, really do a deep dive and it's links to articles and other things. Uh, and of course, if they want to support us financially, there's there's a link for that as well. And they can follow us on Twitter. It's Alexander underscore NJO2. I uh, was just recently... Uh, was that verified verified so i'm happy about that little blue check mark and uh blue check, yeah yes so um i hope that people will, will look us up and um just do a, a deeper dive and if people from the district are listening i hope that it, at least something resonates with them that there is a better way for us to utilize our congressmen and you know and i didn't even get a chance to talk about the fact that i want to make all these little local committees that would help me in dealing with issues coming from Washington, we review bills to see which way they would want their congressmen to vote on it. Because, you know, this stuff being done in a vacuum, these things that Jeff Andrew is doing, we he has no clue if he has support of the district. He won't know that until the election. And so it'd be nice if he were to just ask or set up committees like, hey, do you guys, do you think there was a widespread election fraud? Uh, because if the answer is, I don't care. What's that got to do with us? Then he should move on. Or if it's, of course, uh, my belief that no, there's not widespread. There's no evidence of it. 
then you should move on. And if they're, if the answer is yes, then how about, I know this is going to sound crazy, form a commission. We don't have to try to block the certifications in order to uh, address these issues. That was theatrical and it was bad and it led to violence. You know, it just, just a gross abuse of power. So let's agree. When Corey comes to New Jersey in the fall, we meet at a kosher deli in your district. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Sounds like no, a plan. Right. And uh, I, I know the spot we're going to go to is in Market, New Jersey. I heard <laughs> right. you. We're good. So All right. I, Sounds I great. The link to um, the website as well as uh, your Twitter handle on in the show notes. And, um, you know, because there really is so much more to dig into. I wish we had time to dig into. I've heard you speak about civic engagement as an imperative. You know, it's not just leadership of one person of a district. It's engaging the entire community of that district. Exactly. Uh, So, um, yeah, there's so much more to dig into. What an absolute honor. What an absolute pleasure. Tim Alexander, it's been great getting to know you here personally. And uh, like, I'm not kidding. Uh, I really hope that we do this again. I'm in. So uh, you just let me know when you have time for me. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.